1: Live by Live has all of your favorite music and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now.
2: I believe that passwords are for tree houses. They were a technology invented in 1964 when I was 16 years old. And it is unbelievable to me that today at 72, we are still using
1: passwords. That's one of the world's foremost experts on bank fraud. Once portrayed on the big screen by Leonardo DiCaprio, Frank Abagnale, telling you why passwords should be a thing of the past. That story right now. I'm Steve Parker Jr. This is Parker on Tap. Frank, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you.
1: Absolutely. Well, Frank, you and I first met of all places at an airport as we were about to board a plane. And I remember talking to you and you handed me your card and I handed you mine. And we, you know, we chatted for a few minutes and given your sort of life history and story, it always makes me laugh a little bit that that's where we met. It was good fortune when have it. We actually live in the same neighborhood. And so we've gotten to know one another's families really well over the last number of years. And I mentioned that because through our relationship i've gotten to know there's so much more morality to your life and your story than simply what played out on the big screen
2: yeah i think that's true and i think uh, as as anything with movies and people who tell your story uh, they leave a lot of things out and you know that was 50 years ago so people really only know what they see in the movie they have no idea what happened really after the movie
1: I'm, i'm still that's and it's and it's a great film and, you know, and, and, and as you and I have gotten to know one another, I know some of it's truthful and, and some of it's sort of storytelling, right, that, that Spielberg and his writing team created to, to create more drama. But, but quite a bit of it is, is, is quite accurate. Um, yes. You know, I thought
2: he stayed, I was going to say, I thought he, he stayed very close to the story because it was the first time he had made a movie about a real person living And I think he was very sensitive about that. So I felt that he did a tremendous amount of his own research, and his research team did a lot of research. And he had the benefit of the three FBI agents who were portrayed in the film, the Tom Hanks character and the two younger agents, that they were still alive and they were retired from the Bureau. And he was able to bring them on the set as his consultant. So he was able to do a lot of things, go back to people I went to school with and teachers I had. And. So I thought he did a lot of research. But when you're telling someone's five years of someone's life into two and a half hours of film, you got to change some things around.
1: It's, it's very difficult, and of course you have to. Before we get into the more of your story, I think what many people may not know is that in the film, you know what they see is, they, is it covers a part of your life where you impersonated a pilot and a doctor and a lawyer. But you were actually quite young when all this occurred, and I don't know that many people know that, but you were quite young.
2: Yeah, I started all of that at 16 years uh, of age and uh, was caught when I was 21 years old and now I'm 72, about to approach uh, 73 in April.
1: And well, well, looking back, what elements of your upbringing or experiences sense, have created the ambition or the drive for you to be who you are today?
2: You know, I think basically I was very fortunate that I had good parents, you know, the only problem i had with the film is i thought that steven spielberg for whatever reason portrayed my father in a very poor light he was an extremely honest man he was a very credible person and most of all he taught me to respect people he taught me about ethics and character uh, my parents uh... you know sent me to a catholic school we went to church on sunday they gave me all the necessary tools that a parent needs to give a child And I had those tools. So a lot of times people go down the wrong road and uh, they make some mistakes. But if you have that rope that you've gotten at your childhood, you can grab out to that rope and pull yourself back in onto the straight and narrow path. And I think I owe that to my parents. I had that rope and I was able to reach out, grab that rope and put myself back on the right road. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of children today who don't have that rope. And once they make that turn and go down that wrong road, they have no rope to reach out to and bring them back.
1: Right. Well, and, and, and the things that you did during that time period, you, you obviously you know, paid your dues. And you spent time in prison and, and then you've spent the time really since still working for the FBI all these many years later. You've been offered pardons by three sitting presidents of the United States and you've turned them all down. Why have you done that?
2: Well, and I deeply appreciate those offers, but I've always felt that what I did, I did. I don't believe that you can excuse what I did by simply signing a piece of paper. And I just feel that I wanted my life to reflect that I changed my life and that I did positive things with my life. And in the end, that people will judge me Based on what I actually did with my life and how my life turned out, not that someone signed a piece of paper and said you're forgiven for the things you did. I think you have to earn that forgiveness, and I spend every day trying to do that.
1: Well, and it's it's that it's that accountability, right? And and that was in, sounds like it was ingrained in you as a young as a young boy from your parents. And yep. obviously, at some point, based on different circumstances, you know, you you came off of the, the railroad track, if you will. Um, but then you found your way back on it. and You took accountability. And I think a lot of people, when they're let off the hook, they just are sort of in a situation of, oh, well, I got away with that. That's great. Versus right. taking full accountability. Um, you know, today, today you still serve as a consultant to the FBI and, and, numerous corporations and you've helped create many of the solutions that banks use to prevent fraud today. What's an example of one of those solutions that protect us as consumers?
2: Well, it's amazing how my life has changed over my 45-year career doing this now. So back uh, 20, 30 years ago, uh, I dealt mainly with developing technology that went into paper and plastic and credit cards, driver's licenses, passports, birth certificates. And I worked with some of the top security printers in the world, not only in this country but in Australia and in Great Britain, uh, helping develop technologies to keep documents from being counterfeited and altered or copied or replicated or uh... altered by use of chemicals but then times change and crime changes and so the last ten fifteen years everything has become cyber related in the internet and the computer so i had to change with crime and so i had to start learning all about cyber crime and things that didn't exist back when i was doing the things i did And so I've spent a great deal of time educating myself about these crimes, working with the Bureau, uh, teaching at the FBI Academy about cybercrime and uh, things that we need to know about all kinds of risks that we associate ourselves with, whether on the consumer or business side. I've worked with a gentleman named Ori Eisen. We spent 10 years together and developed the 41st parameter, which is a fraud detection technology used by banks, retailers, and airlines. Uh, we developed that technology, and we eventually sold it to Experian, and that technology is now used in 80 countries around the world through Experian's ability to distribute that technology to banks and companies around the world, and we continue to work on new technologies to combat all the problems that we face every day. There's always something new. There's always another issue.
1: Well, and and I've spoken to Ori, and he's a fantastic, really unique individual in and in of himself, um, you know, and, and I'll ask you this question, you know, you've written a number of books your latest scammy if you can And you have this tremendous knowledge of all these areas of fraud fraud and cybercrime But tell me, you know with Ori you guys are also working on a, on a new business now Tell me about how you're ridding the world of passwords and the impact that that will have on consumers and businesses in the future
2: Absolutely, and I I believe that passwords are for tree houses there were a technology invented in 1964 when I was 16 years old before I had done any of the things I did. And it is unbelievable to me that today at 72, we are still using passwords. And we know for a fact that 86% of all malware, ransomware, phishing attacks, breaches, all occur from passwords. So we are long past due getting rid of passwords and so Ori and I sat down about 6 7 years ago after we ended up selling the 41st parameter to Experian and said what's next and I said we really need to attack these passwords we need to get rid of passwords and come up with an ability and a technology to do that and we've done that with a technology called TrueSona which is now being used by some of the major banks in America it's being used by governments it's being used by insurance companies and corporations It's a little difficult and time-consuming to get people to change their habits, but we will eventually, I think, in the next two or three years, see people and companies and corporations uh, get rid
1: of passwords,
2: and when that happens, we will put a big dent in ransomware and malware and and those types of cyber-related crimes.
1: And you think that will also lead to getting rid of things, you know, other things, let's say social security numbers or things of that nature? Yeah, we'll
2: be able to identify an individual by their device, so by their phone, we'll know that that's the person on the other end of the line instead of guessing about it now or allowing people to use phony credentials online or phony credentials on paper uh, to identify them and take over someone else's uh, identity.
1: Right. Well, and it's fascinating because it's so incredibly difficult to keep up with passwords in any reasonable fashion, no matter who you are these days, it's, it's time consuming in, a, in its own right to try and keep up with them. So that's a great solution. Yeah,
2: and we know that. And I think when we start to introduce it, companies, what they will do, whether it's an airline, will simply say to you, do you want to sign in with your password or do you want to sign in with no password? And that still gives people the ability to adjust to it. But I think over time, obviously, if people are going to say, I don't, I want to sign in with no password. So it just yeah. takes the time to get people out with new technology to understand it and feel comfortable
1: with it. Right. We, you know, Frank, you also speak all over the world um, quite frequently. And and I recall us being at dinner once and you telling me that you were flying out uh, later that week to speak at Google. And as of yesterday, that Google talk has been viewed over 10 million times. So there's clearly a great deal of interest, not only in your story, but also the topic of fraud and cybersecurity. It, do you think that's because? Today there are so many ways to scam companies or individuals and and also even with technology is is it easier now or is it harder now?
2: It's 4000 times easier today than when I did it 50 years ago. I certainly didn't have all the technology that exists today. And even in social engineering all I had was a telephone to call somebody. Today there are many other forms of communication. But I think people are very, very concerned about protecting their identity, protecting their family. Uh, Companies and corporations are very concerned about security in the United States. Ninety-seven percent of businesses in North America are small businesses, and many of those businesses that end up having ransomware or malware go out of business within six months. So I think people are aware of that, and they want to be educated both as consumers, seniors, and elderly people, millennials. They want to know, how do I protect myself? What are these scams? How do these scams work? And so that's one of the reasons I've worked with ARP for the last five years. They have 38 million members, and basically I try to help educate those people about these scams and how they work. I've, I've always believed that there are three segments to what I do. There's prevention. You have to prevent crimes. You have to be very forward-thinking, and you have to be proactive. You can't be reactive. Uh, there of course is verification everything today has to be verified no matter what it is even if i have a financial advisor and he or she tells me to do something i need to take the time to verify that myself everything today has to be checked out and verified and finally education and i've always believed that education is the most powerful tool to fighting crime so whether i'm educating fbi agents or i'm educating consumers or bankers if i can explain to them this is a scam this is how it works and this is what you do to protect yourself from happening happening to you um, people are smart enough to take those steps they just need to know people are basically honest thank god and because they're honest they don't have a deceptive mind so when the phone rings and the caller id says it's US government medicare NYPD they believe that to be true. They don't know that it's very, very simple to manipulate caller ID to say whatever you want it to say. But once you tell them that, and they're aware of that, then they know what steps to go from there.
1: Right. Well, and and I've had, you know, personally, I've had plenty of those calls. And, you know, thankfully, I'm able to, you know, figure out pretty quickly that they're scams or, or question the people and ask a question that then they can't provide the proper answer to. So you just hang up. But obviously, there are plenty of people that don't do that and just you know go forward with trust that they're being honest with them exactly what's what's the most common type of fraud today just one example and and how how would a consumer protect themselves
2: well you know the most common scams we see out there and of course when i wrote scam me if you can i wrote it as uh, i was commissioned to write it by aarp And uh, they asked me to look at every scam, every single scam there was and is. And they wanted me to look at scams against millennials, scams against seniors, investment scams, Bitcoin scams, currency scams. And that's what I did. And in writing the book, uh, I had really a big surprise. And that was that I found that millennials were scammed more often than seniors, but seniors lose more money. Yeah, because they they have more money so anybody can be scammed and that's one of the things i tell people the most intelligent people in the world get scammed people in government get scammed every day bankers get scammed every day if you're scammed it's nothing to be embarrassed about but you need to share it with someone so that we prevent somebody from doing it to uh, somebody else sometimes people are so ashamed that they had their money stolen from them even if it was a small amount they don't want to tell their parents because maybe they feel uh, or their or their grandparents or anyone else because maybe they'll take away their privileges. So a lot of times many of these things get unreported. But today we have these common scams like the grandparents scams and the sweepstakes scams and uh, all of these things now with the pandemic where people are sitting at home and they're on their computer constantly and all these things pop up on the computer where you can Go uh, get ahead of the line by paying uh, a certain fee to Medicare to get ahead of everyone else and get your vaccine. Uh, you name it, the scammers always follow the headlines, so whatever's going on at that moment, uh, they build scams around that. But typically they're always the same type of scams, they're just built around whatever's going on at that time.
1: Wow, that's, that's uh, unbelievable to, to know that millennials are – you know, more often scammed than than older people. And obviously, older individuals would have more money to lose. Yeah, and something of that nature. But that's, that's pretty wild. Um, You know, one of the more useful tips that I personally have heard from you, Frank, is the difference between credit cards and debit cards, like how they impact your credit report and also how they impact your liability.
2: Yeah, I have always believed and have written in many of my books over the years that I only use a credit card, not a credit debit card, just simply a credit card, American Express, Discover Card, Visa, MasterCard. And every day of my life, I spend their money. I'm not spending my money. My money is sitting in a... An account earning interest. And every day I go to the grocery store, the dry cleaner, I get on a plane, I go to a hotel, I'm spending the credit card money, uh, the credit card company's money, and the only money at risk is their money. Now, I will do everything to protect my card, but if someone gets my number and charges $1 million on my credit card tomorrow, by federal law, my liability is zero. I have no liability. When I pay that bill every month or I pay the minimum due every month, my credit score goes up, so I continue to build credit in my name. When you use a debit card, every time you reach for it, you're exposing the money in your personal account. And when they steal that money, they're stealing your money. It's a whole different world when you're trying to talk the bank into giving you your money back that's already been removed from your account versus a credit card company where you haven't paid them yet and you can claim that you didn't make those charges and sign an affidavit to that fact before ever giving them that money now you can use a debit card every day 20 times a day for 20 years but you will not raise your credit credit score by one point so i've always had my three sons only use credit cards and when they went off to college they were 18 i applied for a credit card in their name but i guaranteed it because they had no credit and one, I was able to see how they spent their money while they were away at college because I had to pay the bill every month and I was responsible for the bill. So if they were spending a lot of time in a bar, I would know it. And when I paid the bill every month, it went on their credit. So by the time they got out of college four years later or after law school six years later, they were able to buy their own house, buy a condominium, buy a car. They had excellent credit because that bill was paid every month. So one of the best things you can do for your children is to teach them at an early age the importance of credit. This is not 30 years ago when credit was all about, do I get the house, do I get the car, do I get the loan? Today, everything is based on your your credit. If you apply for a job, they check your credit. You apply for auto insurance, they check your credit. You apply for life insurance, they check your credit. Everything is based on your credit. So it's important that young people understand it's important to build credit and build good credit in your name, and keep your credit good. And one of the best ways to do, and safe ways to do that, is strictly use a credit card.
1: That's such great advice, Frank. And, and you know, I didn't never thought of it that way until you and I spoke about it once at a dinner. And and you know, my kids aren't old enough for credit cards quite yet. But getting one of the, one of them's getting close. And uh, I certainly plan on on applying that to uh, to her when when she's just a little bit older. I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to Parker on Tap, a podcast where we have lively conversations with people you need to know. I'm your host, Steve Parker Jr. In this episode, we are talking with one of the world's most respected authorities on cybercrime and fraud, Frank Abagnale. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with others. Let's talk for a minute on the topic of transparency. Speaking of education, um, you know, you and I have discussed this many times before this lack of transparency, particularly from my point of view that exists in the industry and with, within which I work, which is marketing and advertising. And you know, because we spent a lot of time together that my company, Level Wing, has built you know, an intentional business based very much on transparency of media expenditure and agency compensation, which is fairly rare and unique in our industry. How would you characterize companies that are not transparent on these issues?
2: They're basically walking that line of being illegal and doing illegal activity, and it's all out of greed. You know, I deal with a lot of gift cards, and gift cards are one of the best ways to move money, laundry money, and rip off seniors and elderly people with no way of tracing where the money, where the money went. When you go out to these gift card companies where the legitimate U.S. corporations, and you say to them, look, because you're doing this, you are allowing people to rip off millions of people And you should put in these things in place so these things cannot happen to the customers who use your cards. Well, instead of doing that, they don't want to do that because they're going to lose money. So it comes down to greed, and they're willing to play the game where they make it easier. People make it so easy for people to steal from them, then they're very surprised why people do. So all of these things I look at and realize how easy they are to manipulate – but how much they could be further protected if they simply made some simple steps and take the consumer first but they're more worried about making money than they are worrying about being honest yeah
1: and it's funny because we we've, we've spoken about so the legality of it before and you know in 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 the world in which I work you know you can write contracts that say in here that you know you can take rebates or take these bonuses and things that you never make fully clear to a client that you're taking based on their, their expenditures or their spends. Um, But you, you know, you had once said like, look, you, you know, I can write a perfectly good contract that allows me to steal all your money, but it doesn't mean it's right.
2: That's exactly right.
1: And it's not, it's
2: not morally correct. And basically to me, it's nothing more than a con. It's a scam. You're just walking that fine line of what's legal and what's illegal, but you're certainly not, doing anything to benefit or help your customer.
1: Why do you feel that so many companies or you know, really companies are just individuals at the end of the day, because that's who makes the decisions. Why do you feel like there's, there's a lack of being transparent or an unwillingness to be fully transparent?
2: Well, whether it's the government uh, politicians or whether it's businesses, uh, it's to their own benefit. If they're too transparent, then whatever it is they're trying to do will not work. So they're trying to do something that maybe is a little bit unethical, is not the proper way to do business, but if they tell you everything and they're transparent about it, you won't do business with them. So if they can manipulate some words or manipulate their their approach and approach it in a different way to make you believe that they're doing it the proper way, uh, that works to their benefit. And again, it comes back down to simply agreed and how much money I can make more versus whether it's right or wrong.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I, sleep so much better at night knowing that we don't operate that way. So I don't no, have to worry about it. Um, you know, when you, when you got out of continuing on this topic of transparency, when you got out of prison and you were working for the FBI and they were not paying you by the way, um, right. you still had to go out and get a job to make money. What did you learn about being transparent, in the process of finding and keeping a job?
2: this is a story i really never told but i think it's about time i tell it and that's simply that first of all i try to make it very clear i am not an employee of the fbi i have worked and consulted with the fbi for over forty five years and during my forty five years they have never literally paid me one dime so yes i travel all over the united states on their behalf i speak at their field offices I go to programs that they put on around the country for other law enforcement agencies and bankers. I teach at the FBI Academy, which is in Quantico, Virginia, and I have to transport myself there. I do not ask to be reimbursed for my expenses. I have never taken a dime from the government. I do this because it's my way of paying back my government for the benefit they've given me, the ability to come out and do something with my life, and it's a way of paying back my debt. But when I first started and I had this agreement with the government that I would come out of prison and I would do these educational programs and help the government deal with white-collar crime and fraud, it was understood that I would not be paid. And like anybody leaving prison, I was paroled. So I was sentenced as under y Y-2 Act, which was the Youthful Offender Act in the federal government because I had committed the crimes before I was 21 years old which simply meant that instead of serving a certain amount of time, it was up to the parole board, the U.S. Federal Parole Board, to decide when to parole me. So I could have served six months. I could have served three years. Instead, I served four years of my 12-year sentence, and then I was paroled. I had a parole officer. For five years, I reported to that that parole officer, and I had to have a job. I had to support myself, and that was the agreement. So the government told me because I was sentenced under this Useful Offender Act and that my records were closed and sealed, I didn't really have to tell anyone that I had been in prison. So the first job I got was at a pizza inn in Houston, Texas, making pizza. And after about six months, they obviously saw that I was clean cut, that I was well spoken, so they made me an assistant manager of this pizza inn. And I would make the night deposit every night and put the money in the bank, no problem. But they wanted to put me into a management training program, and they found out about my past, and they fired me. So then I went to work driving a bus from downtown to the airport. And uh, I worked for that bus company for a while. They decided to make me a supervisor over a shift. They ran a background check on me, and they fired me. Then I went to work for a large grocery chain in Houston, Texas called Wine Gardens, and I started out as a night stocker stocking groceries. And again, they saw management capabilities in me, so they made me an assistant manager. And I did very well working as an assistant manager in a very large 24-hour store. But then again, they decided that they thought I should go into a management training program, so they did a background check, and they fired me at that point in my life I realized I can't hide what I did so one of the things I did while working while I was in prison is I learned how to operate these big 35 millimeter movie projectors and I did that on the weekend and because even though we were on federal property I still had to be licensed by the state of Virginia to operate those projectors so they get me I went through the test and all that while in prison and I was able to get my license So I went into a movie theater and I simply said to the manager, I have a license, I can convert it to Texas, but I need to tell you this. I've been in prison. This is where I learned how to operate these projectors. This is what I was in prison for. This is what I did. This is who I am. And the manager said, "Okay. I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty. You've got the job. And I went to work. I learned very quickly that just being honest and upfront with people goes a long way than trying to hide something that you can't really hide. And you know, later on I realized that if I'm educating law enforcement people, why can't I educate bankers and private business? So I asked my parole officer, can I go out and do these talks to uh private companies? And he said, Sure, if they'll accept you and if they'll pay you. So I would go to these banks and simply say, look, I'd like to come in and talk to your staff and your tellers, teach them how to spot counterfeit money, short change artists, fraudulent checks. And if at the end of my presentation, which may be an hour or two, you feel you didn't learn anything, you don't need to pay me. But if you feel that you've learned something, I'd like you to pay me. And that's how I started out. So I really had to make my own second chance. Nobody really gave me a second chance. I had to make my own second chance, but I learned that hiding what you did was not the right idea that didn't work, and it would have been much better had I just simply started out uh, simply saying that was my background, and I'll be very honest with you, and I tell my children this all the time. I was very happy working at that grocery store, and if that grocery store, I had been honest with them, and they said to me, well, you know, We're going to overlook that. You've been with us a while. We're going to put you in this management training program. I think I'd be a much happier person today had I just been the manager of one of those stores, and that was my career, and I lived in a small house. I still had my wonderful wife and children, but I wasn't the person I was, didn't have all the notoriety, all the baggage that goes along with it. I would have lived a much happier life, I think, had I just done that to begin with.
1: Well, Frank, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's obviously beyond honorable that you've done this work, you know, for the FBI and the U S government for all these years and never been paid a dime for doing that. Cause I don't know that. I don't even know that myself, I wouldn't (laughs) take a dollar or two (laughs) if someone was going to offer it. But I mean, I, I respect you for that. And as I've gotten to know, you know, so many stories that are, that are similar to that, but I, that's one that I wasn't aware of that, that you never got paid. I knew you did tons of work for them, but I didn't know they didn't pay you. Um, And then the the story of of going to work at the at the movie theater, I personally have heard and probably many others haven't. But it's just there's so much to take away and just having a hard conversation or being honest with the way things are in your life. And because I think most people want to be forgiving or give people opportunity. They just want someone to be honest with them.
2: Right. And I think when you're not, then they immediately start to think to themselves, well, why didn't this guy tell me this? in the beginning so was he being deceptive to begin with and not letting me know this and if he if he was can i really trust him since he wasn't honest with me from day 1 how can i go on to trust him so i've just learned and i would tell anyone it's much better to be upfront it may not always work they may not hire you they may fire you or they may not give you the job but at least you're being upfront and being honest and being transparent and saying this is what i did I'm just looking to start my life over and I need that break and I need someone to trust me. And when they think you've been upfront and honest with them, that immediately opens the door to them trusting you.
1: 100%. I think it opens the door even if you haven't done anything that deserved, you know, prison time, you know, just to be honest with people and, and have straightforward conversations, even if they're hard, difficult ones. Well, I, you know, I'll, because of that, because of that sort of honesty, and, and this parlay[s] into something I wanted to cover with you as well, and it has more to do with family, because you know, everyone know, or a lot of people know your story, at least from the film, or if they've read your book, um, and maybe people have been able to be fortunate enough to see some of your talks and those sorts of things that you give at a lot of corporations, you know, throughout the year, you know, but like I've been able to spend real time with you one on one and with your family, and and so I know of your deep love of family, your children, your grandchildren your wife, Kelly, who my wife and Deanna just absolutely adore, by the way. Um, And I've, I've personally learned so much from you that has an impact on my role and enters my thoughts on a frequent basis as a husband and a father today. So let's talk a little about that. What drives your focus and appreciation to be a father and focus on family the way that you do?
2: Well, first of all, I know that people sometimes when they ask the most uh, common question, what changed your life? I know they're looking for me to say that I was born again or I saw the light or I went to prison and they rehabilitated me. But to be honest, it was none of those things. I met my wife when I worked an undercover assignment for the Bureau in Houston, Texas. I didn't have a dime to my name. And I met my wife. I kind of fell in love with her. I eventually told her everything about me, again, being very transparent to who I really was and what my background was, and I eventually asked her to marry me, and against the wishes of her parents, she did. And she, and she alone changed my life. She believed in me, she trusted in me, she encouraged me, Uh, she was such an incredible woman with such great morals and character and ethics that it rubbed off on me and then I brought my first son into the world, and you quickly realize that you have a responsibility for another human being to raise that child. And fatherhood brings tremendous amount of wisdom, and I really felt that those are the things that changed my life. And, of course, I ended up with three sons, one who is an FBI agent, makes his dad very, very proud. He's 15 years in the Bureau. Uh, and... All two of my sons have made three. My three sons have made me proud. I have six grandchildren, but that's what really changed my life was the importance of family, and that's what I meant when I was talking about it. But I had stayed in that grocery store, and I wasn't who I was today. I would still be so so happy because it would be just a more simple life. But I would still have the woman I love, the person who believed in me. I would still have my children, and the the. the joy of having them, watching them grow up and being their father, all of that would still be there. And to me, as I look back on my life, that's really the most important thing in my life. That's what really changed my life. And that's the person I am today. And that's the only real thing that means anything to me in life.
1: Frank, I'll end with you know do you have a is there a mantra or a, or a core principle or, or a word or a phrase or something that guides you in your life and the work you do
2: um,
1: I think that you know the main thing is I, I truly and
2: it's some people find it hard to believe coming from someone that had my background but people make mistakes in their life and then they realize their mistakes and then they try to say to themselves what's really important to change your life and I think Ethics is very important, and being, being honest with people, being transparent with people, uh, most of all, of course, you know, loving your wife, being faithful to your wife, uh, loving your children, being there for your children and your grandchildren. Uh, those are the kind of core things that make my life, and those are the only important things to me. Uh, in life and in business i try to help people as best i can i try to give people the necessary tools they need to protect themselves whether they're a consumer or a business and i great great satisfaction out of knowing from the letters i get and the correspondence i get that people uh... do appreciate what i do and people reach out to me every day in emails that have a problem and i try to work through the problem with them whether they had their identity stolen or whether they have an issue with uh, something involving uh, a consumer issue. Um, those things just make you know, life worthwhile that you're helping people and you're doing something. And in the end, it's, it's all about you knowing in yourself that you're doing the, r- the right thing.
1: Right. Well, thank you, Frank. Um, thank you so much. I'm always so appreciative of my time with you, your friendship and the way you live your life. I always cherish so my love to you and Kelly and we're due for dinner very soon thank you Steve great talking with you absolutely talk to you soon bye-bye you just listened to my conversation with Frank Abagnale one of the world's leading experts in cybercrime and fraud the most important takeaway look this, this might be breaking news I've personally known Frank for many years and heard lots of stories but he shared a story on this podcast that he's never told before about having never been paid by the FBI or any U S government agency for which he has done work. And it's, that's amazing. And also I just loved hearing what really changed him to be a better person. Thanks for listening. And please share Parker on tap on social or with a friend. You can also rate the podcast on your favorite listening platform and reach out to us at parkerontap.com.